0: Welcome to The Spot Check. Join your resident occupational and speech therapist, Amelia and Heather, as they dive in and get real with patients and clinicians about living with chronic disease. Welcome back to The Spot Check with Amelia and Heather. This week, we are introducing you to a topic near and dear to our hearts, head and neck cancer. Head and neck cancer is kind of, I would say, how Amelia and I really started bonding and getting to really know more about each other, and, and also discussing these really interesting, difficult cases. Because quite honestly, I've worked with this population for over 16 years, but not not as intensely as I have the last five years. And I, I will honestly admit, I did not know
1: that much about head and neck cancer. Did you, Amelia? Not really either until the last five years. Okay. So my CI in 2009 was a certified lymphedema therapist, And one of the specialty area that she did was head and neck cancer. So I saw quite a bit of patients with her in the hospital just right after their surgery, as well as in the outpatient setting. So I think the most impactful interaction that I saw was she was treating someone with radiation. And I just remember that man had such a limited range of motion in the neck that he couldn't go back to driving. But with the lymphedema treatment, it changed a lot of that symptom. And then another case that I remember from back then was this lady with orbital cancer. They literally took out the whole orbit of the eye. Mm. And he would come in with a gauze covering that hole. And then my CI would take the gauze out and look into that orbital hole and clean it up. And that's really something that I would never forget. I mean, how can you forget that, right? That's gnarly, that's intense. But I have not seen anything like that ever since. So wow. primarily since then, you know, like five years ago, I got I took the head and neck lymphedema course from Norton. And that's when I started seeing these patients more intimately.
0: So this population I started seeing when I was an acute care therapist straight out of school, we would do different rotations within the large university hospital I worked at. And I don't know what it was. I just begged not to go to the oncology floor. Both of my grandparents had had some type of cancer. And I I, I don't know if that's what it was. I just, I didn't like going there. It just made me feel very uncomfortable. I remember one of my first patients there that had a trach, you know, was fresh out of school. And they had this metal trach. This this Jackson trach. And you don't see them very much, but they're this literally, it's a metal trach. And I was, I remember trying to find a speaking valve to fit it. And I was so perplexed. It was this older woman who was yelling at me essentially, oh, you know, the good times when you don't know anything and you're just trying to make things better. And that patient is in a lot of pain and they're not very happy and, you know, clearly they have cancer and you just don't know what you're doing. You're just trying the best you can.
1: Right. I just remember watching my CI tooth because, you know, I was not the independent therapist treating these patients, especially in the acute care floor. But I remember like there was this gentleman and he just had some type of surgery. I can't remember which one was it, but I am pretty sure it involved removal of the lymph nodes because there's a scar on his neck. He has JP drain and I was just like literally frozen because I, I don't know what to do with these patients and they are in so much pain, just kind of like you said. But my CI was very calm and she went in, start, you know, like looking at the shoulder, teaching him like a little bit of the just a gentle breathing exercise to help this gentleman. I also have the same thing. I never want to work with oncology population. And guess what? 10 years later, here we are. (laughs) Right? I think just listening to
0: you say that made me reflect and think, I didn't really have a lot of training for it in school. Definitely not in undergrad, not really in graduate school. I was very fortunate to have a lot of great externship placements in graduate school, but not a lot of in-depth training on cancer at all. So I wonder if that was part of my reluctance to go to that floor and to see these patients because I truly, I didn't know what to do. I always wanted to give my best to every single patient. I still do, of course, but I really, I didn't know what to do and I was so scared and I didn't want to make them any worse than they already were.
1: Right. I kind of agree with you on that one because I mean, in occupational therapy school, we hardly cover the topic of oncology and maybe I got one lecture about lymphedema because Our school happened to be attached to a university hospital that has a strong lymphedema program. I just remember um, I was trying to find every article about the role of occupational therapists with cancer rehab. 11 years ago, it was very minimal. Right. And I bought this book and trying to read, but I I feel like nothing that I read on paper really prepares me to help these patients in front of me because we have interviewed several survivors and we have treated many patients. And you just know that the extent of their experience. I mean, we can't capture it with the pages that I read in the books.
0: No, no, that in-your-face, hands-on, listening to their story, watching them—if especially. I think when they're in the acute phase, you're seeing that on the acute care side, or they're coming in during their radiation treatments or their chemo treatments, and you are part of that story. You might be just that little hour of that or that 15 minutes in the hospital when you're popping in and popping out. But for me, anyway, that gave me such better appreciation and respect for that decision they made to treat that cancer. Yeah. So it was really life-changing for me in a lot of different ways. As a speech therapist, we do a lot with obviously swallowing and the voice and speech because it's, it's all head and neck. Hello. That's, that's our area. That's our playground. So when I got out of graduate school, I started working for the University of Tennessee Medical Center. It, it was funny, when I was in graduate school, I always kind of said, I'm not going to do that much with swallowing, and I'm certainly not going to do that much with voice. Well, by de facto, after about a year working at, at the hospital, I kind of became the voice person because the other voice specialist left. So I had to become the voice person and learn how to do voice evaluations, learn how to do um, stroboscopy to look at the vocal cords and that type of thing. So Ta-da! Not only was I doing swallowing every day, I was then doing voice every day. So it was interesting to start doing that and have to recognize the signs of cancer and be like live and up close with that. And oftentimes be the first person to recognize that that person has cancer. I'm not a medical professional on that level that can diagnose it. I can't diagnose it. I have to just refer back to the doctor and the patient, you know, might say, "What do you see?" and it's kind of like the same thing when you and I go to go get an x-ray or something and that x-ray tech says, "Oh, you have to wait for the doctor to discuss it with you. I couldn't say anything." But there were many times it was it was very uncomfortable for me, but it was also I don't know, a very reverent moment, I guess, to realize that however I proceeded next after seeing this growth or whatever changes of the mucosa I was seeing, however I proceeded and how I spoke to this person would probably make a huge difference in how they reflected back on that incident and that examination with me. That always made me very conscious of what I did with them.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because I think just getting diagnosed with cancer is already traumatic in some ways. But then when you think about head and neck cancer, that involves your, kind of what you mentioned, your swallowing, your breathing, your neck movement. I mean, you can be so debilitated without any of that but i just kind to also want to talk about how i think there is this stigma that if somebody has a head and neck cancer that they must be smoking or chewing tobacco so before i went on this call with you i was looking up the cdc statistics because i, I need to refresh it however i don't know if you know this heather but you probably do drinking any type of alcohol such as beer wine and liquor also, raise the risk of getting cancer of the mouth, throat, and voice box. I mean, yeah, what in the world? Yeah. I have no idea. And then another one that is, I've heard this from you actually the first time, but I didn't know the statistics. About seventy percent of cancer in the oropharynx, which includes the tonsil, soft palate, and the base of tongue, are linked to the human papilloma virus or HPV, which is also you
0: know sexually transmitted disease. Which we we frequently think about it, right? A test that we get as during our annual, frequently for women, but there's no test for men.
1: Ah, that's interesting. According to CDC, about twice as many men as women get head and neck cancer. I believe in the
0: in the current trends, there's about 450,000 head and neck cancer survivors in the United States, and about 20,000 new head and neck cancer survivors every year. The thing about patients getting younger and younger is they're living long enough now to suffer the late and extremely late toxicities of treatment. So that's where we frequently see these late radiation effects that people aren't even aware that can be a problem. And that's at 20 years or 15 years or even longer where spontaneously now they have have difficulty swallowing or now they have this stiffness in their neck that,
1: where did this come from? I've been fine all this time. Right. I mean, we have this patient who was very young. She's not even 30 years old. And she was working towards her career goal to be a charge nurse. But because of the surgery, her speech becomes less understandable. And she was telling me that there is no way that she can pursue her career goal now. And she have to switch her end career goal, which is really sad to hear at the age of 27. Right. And, you know, she was telling me that people don't take her seriously because of the sound of her voice. And I think that is going to be more common because, I mean, we're we're seeing these patients younger and they're having more issues than before.
0: Yeah, it's a huge consideration as you start thinking about their their cancer planning and their cancer treatment. Well, I mean, really, there's really only like about three things you can do, right? So when you think about their options, there's surgery and surgery alone, which is can occur with certain cancers. And then there's surgery and chemotherapy and radiation. And for a lot of these cancers, that's that's what they get is all three because of the um, aggressive type of, and nature of the cancer where it might be located. These are longstanding changes that have to be managed and have to be, in my opinion, carefully thought about from the time of diagnosis, like not just the next year, but the lifetime. I, I don't think that that was like thinking about that person's lifetime functionality was often thought about. They were thought about, you know, the, the doctors are really good at taking care of the cancer itself and not maybe thinking about the person as a whole because that's maybe not where, where their focus is.
1: Which but- is super understandable because whenever I was thinking about it, like breast cancer screening is so common now where most people are getting it earlier and earlier. However, head and neck cancer screening... Is still beginning to be more common and more accessible. So if you don't screen it often, then you probably get diagnosed when it's a stage three or a stage four. Mm-hmm. Which means more aggressive treatment is needed, which means at the moment they're only worried about saving your life. But the life that we're saving now, fortunately, are more. Like there are more people who are who survive head and neck cancer. So now what? Right. What's right. after that? Yeah.
0: Um, And it's these devastating effects that can happen to a person's speech, their swallowing, their quality of life, their income, their role as a partner, a caregiver, a friend, an employee. It changes so dramatically. When I was living in Atlanta, I had a patient who came to see me as an outpatient and he had had radiation probably 15 years prior and he was a very wealthy very successful businessman who owned some he owned some nightclubs across Atlanta could have buy and afford anything he wanted however he had not received any therapy after radiation after his treatment so his tongue and his neck and his throat were as solid and rock hard as your wall i'm not kidding he 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 couldn't so everything was so stiff I, I tried everything I knew back then. So we're talking 2006-ish maybe. So I was trying everything I could think of to help this guy. But man, and he tried every swallow exercise we threw at him, but nothing, nothing was going to work for him. But we tried and he tried, but he used to just really, there's there a couple of things he really wanted to get his oral function back for. But he used to try to bribe a friend of mine and I, to, that I worked with to try to get that malfunction back. Because let's face it, like I went around in his private helicopter a lot with some pretty girls. But I think about him often when I am seeing a new patient who was just diagnosed and I'm trying to relay the value and the importance of therapy before cancer or treatment, during cancer treatment, and maybe immediately after even, even stopping. I think of him honestly every single time because I think of what, what his life would have been like and how different his outcome could have been had he started therapy and had we known what we know now. And truthfully, do you know what the percentages of referrals to speech and swallowing therapy and probably occupational therapy as well for head and neck cancer after diagnosis?
1: I have no idea. I'm going to guess the worst.
0: One percent. Exactly. It's like one to three percent. Ding, ding. Although I don't want to say you should win for that. But yeah, so about one to three percent get
1: referred. I mean, I believe you because I remember like seeing 10 years ago, the first time I touched what radiation fibrosis feels like. And I feel this patient's neck and it feels like what you said. I mean, it's hard as a rock. And I'm just thinking like, what does it do to someone's life? You can't turn your neck. There was a period of time three weeks ago. When I cannot turn my neck because it was so painful, it is, I mean, these patients have it all the time. And not to mention that any kind of lymph nodes removal and dissection in the neck, it's very easy to get one of your spinal accessory nerve gut neck, which supply your trapezius, which means that it will impact the way you're able to move your arm. So not only have neck issue, then you have shoulder issue. So now we have somebody with ability to swallow, maybe some inability to speak properly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm difficulty moving their neck, which means they can't really drive. I mean, they still do, but they shouldn't be because it's kind of scary. I mean, they have to turn their whole body. I mean, I remember seeing patients like that. And then now they have difficulty using their arms. What if their livelihood depends on using their arm? You know, somebody who does manual work, contractor, or they're a doctor, a nurse or something, you know? So there's just so many side effects that can happen with the head and neck cancer treatment or after head and neck cancer treatment.
0: You know, you just made me think of a woman I met the other day. She's about, I don't know, a week or two out from having surgery for pituitary cancer removal. And she literally, she has a scar coming from almost down to her clavicle, all the way up the side of her neck, up towards her ear. And she's telling me that she says, I can't sleep on that side of my head at night. And it really hurts up and she's pointing up to like her upper scalp area, right? Like up her whole temporal area. And she says, I don't understand why it's hurting up there so much. I said, well, ma'am, you have a lot of muscle connections and there's a lot of connections up through that area. And I'm trying to keep it like simple for, but, and then she's like kind of trying to move her shoulders. And I asked her to lift both of her arms up as she can't lift that one arm up equally. She says, oh no, it's fine. It's fine. I said, no, that is not fine. We need to get you referred to occupational therapy. And the doctor's like, no, no, isn't that physical therapy? I said, no, 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 <laughs> occupational therapy. So we had that discussion. Yes,
1: depending on the site. It may depending be depending on the site therapist <laughs> physical therapist. Yes, no, absolutely. It, I mean, it should not be the rest of their life. I mean, you know, if somebody got diagnosed at 50 and they have their treatment and imagine living with chronic shoulder and neck pain for 20, 40 years, that is a really long time.
0: No. And to me, is that worth it to beat cancer, but then be permanently disfigured or in pain the rest of my life for 30 years? Like, I don't know what that trade-off is. I don't know. I can't answer that. But yeah, she couldn't believe that that would be causing her pain all the way up there. But literally this, this incision was over a foot long, like easily over 12 inches.
1: Right. Imagine like what, that scar do, do I mean scar pulls the fascia I mean a giant scar like that it will pull her whole entire side and up together and just imagine all the nerves that get affected when that scar is made I'm kind of blown away yeah you no know, I'm just imagining that scar
0: yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty significant. So I got her referred to some uh, good therapists to go help her with that. So hopefully she goes and gets taken care of. But yes, it was five years ago when I moved here and started really working with this population. My eyes were really opened. I started diving into the literature and taking more courses and learning more about this population and the of evaluation and treatment and what we can do. I was really surprised just shocked at how much the field had grown since I'd really looked at it 15 years ago. And then more than that, once I could really see the life-changing differences we can make with people, for speech pathologists anyway, it's a whole different type of patient. They are motivated in a completely different way. They are driven in a completely different way. It's just a very different experience from a a clinician-patient view.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I think Working with a lot of patients with cancer have given me a such just an appreciation for who they are because I think there's that I beat cancer mentality. So now I want to go back. I mean, they're like the most compliant usually, and they're really motivated. I mean, but I think another thing that we didn't talk about but is swallowing is intimately attached to your ability to eat, and we are such a foodie mm-hmm. culture. Everywhere, right? All of our culture is centered around food. So for a lot of our patients, not being able to swallow their favorite food, I mean, it's a huge life change. I remember this guy who couldn't swallow, so he had to just have food from the feeding soup. So he would cook because he just loves to cook. So he would cook his food so he can smell it and appreciate the smell of the food that he's cooking. He was like i almost can't taste it amelia and then he would take that food and put it in a blender blend it all together and just put it in his feeding tube yeah
0: that's that's something that i would miss a lot and because of what the changes that can happen with the mucosa in the mouth with the radiation and even chemo and just surgery too sometimes that food they they may never get the same taste back again so that even if he could taste it that can may never be the same experience
1: Oh my gosh, that, that is so sad. Yes, I have right? a patient who was telling me that like it just doesn't taste the same. The texture is not the same and he is still mourning on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would, I would be grieving that. I would be, that, that would be a big loss for me. I mean, I'd be happy to be alive but I'd be sad not to be able to taste some of my favorite things. What would be one thing you would miss?
1: Oh, one thing? <laughs> Are you yeah. kidding me? Off the top of your head, one thing you would miss? Ice cream. I love ice cream. it's so hard because I, I mean, you know me, I love food. Not being able to taste garlic and soy sauce and salt, all -hmm. those flavors. I mean, I love spices. Curry powder, turmeric, like all those things makes my food taste good. So I would definitely absolutely miss that. What about you? Well, the
0: same with spices. I don't know.
1: Right? It's so hard. Coffee... Oh, I I hate to say French fries,
0: but French fries.
1: Oh, truffle fries. (laughs) I mean, we can talk about this all day, but I guess, you know, like we can start wrapping up because there are, I mean, there are just so many things to talk about. So in the next few episodes, we'll be talking to different people about both people who experience head and neck cancer and receive treatment and also some other professionals who have been on the other side. Just gonna to go in a little bit deeply because I think head and neck cancer is definitely a topic that many of us don't talk about as much so I think it it will be really fun and especially we love this anyway so it'll be really fun to talk about it and just going a little bit deeper with this topic for a while
0: yeah so come on an interesting journey with us as we dive into head and neck cancer
1: on spot check thank you again for joining us today and we'll see you next week
0: Subscribe to the spot check from your provider of choice. Show notes and links can be found at the spotcheckpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Amelia is the lymph therapist, and Heather is the medical SLP.